Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. I am James Finch and this is The Finch Show. Um, I want to talk again, as I do at the beginning of every podcast, about our sponsor, Black Star Woodcrafts. Scott is one of the like, most stand-up quality dudes that I know. And out of his workshop in Michigan is where he applies his trade. And anything you can think of. They can be made out of what this guy makes it. And he does amazing work. He's made pens. He makes rings. He makes bath caddies. I mean, you name it, this guy can make it. He's done some really awesome stuff. We've got like an awesome bottle stopper for wine bottles that he made for us. Um, actually, both the wedding rings, wedding bands that me and my wife have, he made. They're both polished and engraved. It's a wood inlay over an, an actual metal ring. Um, look him up. Blackstar Woodcrafts. He is on Facebook. He is on Instagram. Um, he's got galleries there. You can see what kind of products he has. Um, but if you've got something like what he has, but you'd like something slightly varied, or you have something completely off the wall that you're thinking about, direct message him through there. Talk to him about it. everything he makes is handmade and made to order. There's no mass production. There's no finding a way to crank out 300 of these to turn a profit. So they're kind of crappy. Everything is absolute quality. Contact them through there. And if you say that you got there through the podcast, The Fin Show, you will get 10% off your order. So go look them up. Blackstar Woodcrafts. He's the one you want to talk to. My guest today on the podcast is Elizabeth Northrup. She is uh, an old acquaintance of mine from back in my college days. We had a couple of college classes together at Rock Valley College. And at the time, we had become friends on social media, you know, Facebook and Instagram. Um, and outside of liking and commenting on each other's stuff, haven't really seen or spoken to each other since. So I decided to send her a message, said, hey, why don't you come on my podcast? She said, yeah, what the heck? and came out and we had a really really great time so without further ado ladies and gentlemen here is elizabeth Um, Elizabeth, thanks for coming. Well, you're welcome, James. We had an, an, an well, we met in college. We had two classes. We had a chemistry class and an anatomy physiology class. Right. And um, here we are now sitting down doing a podcast, and that would have been uh, 2006, 2007? That was like, maybe not that long ago. I know that, let's see, I graduated in 12, so... Eight or nine. Yeah. yeah. It's been a long time. <laughs> wow. That's wow. kind of the, the thing about social media. Um, it's one of the things, that, one of the reasons why I started the podcast. It's always interesting. Like, we meet people, we get to know them, we become friends on Facebook, and then you go years and years and years, and you may like and you may comment, but you don't really right. like, hey, actually, how are you doing? Right. You know, so that was one of the reasons I did this and, and an excuse to hear my own voice. Um, <laughs> But I thought this would be apropos since we met in an ad physiology class. I got this news article I got to read for you because this one cracks me up. This is dated 1231-19, so okay. just not that long ago. This is from Newsweek, and I'll post the link on the Facebook page for anybody who wants to read it because this, this story just cracks me up. 
An Alberta man came up with a very unusual for solution for what to do with his amputated arm. He took it to a local taxidermist and had him prepare the bones for display. Almost 20 years ago, Mark Holmgren borrowed his brother's motorcycle for a quick joyride. Unfortunately, taking a corner at high speed brought his out into an unexpected end. I was just driving too fast and turned the corner and wiped out, he said. I tore the nerves of my shoulder. It was a brachial plexus injury, and from that day I could never use it. Couldn't move it, couldn't feel it. Despite the arm never recovering feeling or motion, Holmgren resisted having it amputated, believing that medical science would one day be able to let him use it again. However, after two decades of waiting, he decided to lose the limb and contact the University of Alberta Hospital to schedule its removal. However, Holmgren had grown attached to his right arm over the years and didn't want to end up in the hospital's incinerator, right? So he hatched a plan with a local taxidermist to turn the amputated limb into a one-of-a-kind souvenir. Holmgren picked up the arm from the hospital about a month after the operation and kept it in a garbage bag in his freezer while he auditioned taxidermists to preserve it. Finding a shop willing to ply their trade on human flesh was a challenge, but eventually Legends Taxidermy in Drayton Valley consented to clean the flesh from Holmgren's severed arm and sterilize the bones for display. So there we go. <clears throat> He's in a motorcycle accident. Completely uses use of his arm. Right. For 20 years, just hangs on to it. Just it, and a slang dangling there, I don't know. <laughs> right. After 20 years, decide that's enough. I want to get rid of this thing. <laughs> but wants to keep it. And wants to take it to a taxidermist. So what? What did he do? He just he so he had all the skin taken off of it. Yeah, he had. Yeah, he had done what was called um, a European mount. Yeah, if you ever go to somebody's house and they're a deer hunter. Yeah. And they've got deer heads up there. Now, excuse me, the skull and stuff is not under there. It's just like a foam insert, and they just put the hide around it and put the antlers to it. Um, What they also do is what's called a European mount. You walk into somebody's house, and it's like just the deer skull. You know, all the flesh and everything's taken away. So that's what this guy had done. Um, Usually they do one of two ways of doing that. Usually either they boil it to get all the flesh to sort of slough off, or in this case, what they sometimes use, they put it in a box with flesh-eating beetles who strip the necrotized flesh and leave just the bones, which are usually then bleached and then assembled back together. I read this article about a week ago, and I'm still not entirely sure how I feel about it. (laughs) Question is, would you do it? Would (laughs) I do it? Probably not. It's a little macabre. I don't know if it... Well, what did he do with it? That's what I want to know. He had it. There's pictures of it here. So everybody can look on the link. Um, He was able to pick up his finished arm the night before Christmas and brought it to his family's (laughs) holiday dinner where reactions were varied. He told... He said some of them wanted to touch it. some, Some of them don't want to touch it. It's just mixed feelings. Plans to keep the arm behind his kitchen sink. Behind the kitchen sink. Yeah, I don't know if he means like on the wall, like mounted in like a shadow box. Like, is it holding the sponge? Now, yeah. like that, like if it was, if it was like on a stand. Right. And useful. Yeah. Then, okay. That would be the greatest utensil holder in the world. Right, I think. right. It would be a one of a kind. Yeah. Or if you could use it on as like a jewelry stand. Oh, yeah. You know, hang your necklaces on it holds your umbrella you just grab it on your way right. out the door hold, you hold your keys your wallet your phone when you come home from work <laughs> keys wallet phone um yeah i mean but 
would I do it? And yeah, probably not. If it, it was your arm, too much money, and I wouldn't. Um, I'm not. Yeah, no. It's definitely a conversation piece. I mean, anybody who came over here, like, like today's the first time you're ever at my house. If all of a sudden there was just like an arm on the wall, they're like, oh, yeah, that's mine. Um, I would just be like, okay, yeah, James. Hmm. It just. I might not be coming back out here. Hard, yeah. <laughs> this guy's house. Oh, settle down. Let me give you a hand. Maybe um, my husband was right. Yeah, you're going to come out here and get murdered. I'm not a violent human being. No, um, not at all. I don't know, but on one hand, I not that I and I'm in the same boat. I don't know if I could entirely do it, but I sort of semi understand the idea of if you had a limb amputated and you know they're just going to go throw it in an incinerator and it's just going to be gone. I think there'd be part of you that would be like, I'm going to miss that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, and there's some. Like, oh, I watched a movie one time. It was like a really dark humor movie called um, Very Bad Things. Okay. Christian Slater. Oh, yes, yes, and yes. And they cut a body apart, mm -hmm. and then they're, the one guy is Jewish. So he's like, no, that it has to be all buried together uh -huh. because... That. So I think there, there are some religions out there that you have to have yeah. all of your pieces, uh -huh. otherwise you don't... So if you were in that position, would you would you just be like, yeah, I'm going to need that arm and keep it in the freezer and then have <laughs> it have so. in your will like, hey, in 20 years when I finally kick it, I'm going to need somebody to get that thing out of there. And... Yeah, put it in your will. Yeah. You know, like I need to be buried with this Right. Thing. hope they read the will before they bury you. They're like, oh man, we right. dig this guy back <laughs> <Shoot>. up. <laughs> well, maybe if we just lay it on top. Yeah. Well, it's just an arm. Um, I know that'd be interesting. What if it was just like a toe or a finger? Um... General Dan Sickles, who was a general in the Union Army, I remember this during the Civil War, lost a leg at the Battle of Gettysburg. He had basically what you'd consider to be a tib-fib fracture. You know, a cannonball came rolling and nailed his leg, and they right. had to amputate it above the knee. He ended up donating it to, to a museum. I don't remember which one. I want to say the Smithsonian, but I'm not positive. And every year for the rest of his life on the anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, he went and visited it and supposedly had a drink with it. <laughs> that uh, gives new meaning to the word attached. So <laughs> That's funny. Well, anyway, enough about amputations. Um, so you are a nurse. I am. Um, and you work in dealing with cardiac stuff. Yeah. What, was there a specific thing along the way that said, you know... I want to go the cardiac route or was it just kind of the ebb and flow of life that took you there it was definitely the ebb and flow of life i mean the ebb and flow of life is why i'm a nurse mm -hmm. um so none of my decision well yeah the cardiac position just happened to come up and i was also offered a different position at the same time um, in pediatrics and i could choose either one and i felt like cardiac was probably more along the lines of what I knew mm -hmm. versus pediatrics. So, yeah. yeah. So that's why I took it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you enjoy it? I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am a triage nurse. Okay. So I, well, maybe, I guess that's how you would title it. I'm a clinic nurse. So people call in. Uh, the majority of my day is spent sitting on the phone mm -hmm. talking with patients about um, you know, their needs, assessing them over the phone, which is different than assessing 
you know, in person, yeah. doing sort of a quick rundown of what's going on and trying to get a full picture and then typing that into a note to send to the doctor so that they can make a good determination of what needs to be done. Um, so it's definitely a different way of nursing, but yeah, I like it. I like it. It's, it's not difficult for me mm -hmm. where like other jobs I've had have been a real love hate relationship. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things I found out my time working in the medical field. There were some that were, you just kind of enjoyed. There were some that felt kind of bland. There were some that were very stressful and there were some that were just like you said, I love it. But you know, it was one of those jobs where there'd be days where literally you'd be on shift and be like, I want this to be the last shift I ever do at this mm -hmm. job. Right. And then by the time you got off shift, you're like, yeah, I'll be back tomorrow. Right. You know, because you just kind of like, there was always that kind of pull for it. Um, Majority of my career, though, in nursing, what has been in geriatrics mm -hmm. and long-term care, mm -hmm. um, which, yeah, I mean, that was challenging um but at the same time just as rewarding yeah but hard yeah that was and if i were to sum up the love-hate relationship job long-term care was it for me 100 mm -hmm. there were times where you know you get you'd find yourself frustrated and stressed and for me it was typically at the institution that i worked for it was right. never the actual patients right um and the rewarding part was the patients mm -hmm. you know when you'd when you'd have, you know, um, 95 year old Ethel who was just so delighted you came into her room to help her get in a wheelchair and brush her hair. I mean, that was just, there are few jobs you get that kind of joy out of, you right. know. Um, but it could be very stressful, very backbreaking, at times heartbreaking too. Mm -hmm. um, Michelle and I talked about it on the podcast a couple episodes ago because she was also a nurse in long-term care. And that was, that was, I think, the hardest part about doing long-term care is when you would get emotionally attached to a patient and you'd basically have to come in you know, day after day and watch them just slowly decline and decline and decline. And then one day you show up to work and they're just not there anymore. And you're right. just like, oh, oh, yeah, that was always that was always a rough one. Yeah. Um, I don't know if like for me, if I got super attached to them mm -hmm. and I feel like in general, my view on death and dying is probably different than a lot of people. Mm. Um, but like as a nurse, especially in long-term care, you do get connected, but at the same time, you know, like this person has lived a long time. They had good experiences and bad experiences throughout their life. I get to make sure that their experience with me is good and positive and that you know my touch is kind and my facial expressions are soft mm -hmm. to them um and then when they when they die it, it's just another step of this life right a hundred percent of us are not getting out of here alive right so let's let's make that experience at the end as as nice as possible mm -hmm. so that this person knows that they're still loved that they're still they still matter mm -hmm. to me and you know and then i can go home at the end of the day and know and i 
I love that person and I'm really happy that she's not in pain anymore or what an extraordinary life that he led. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. 100%. That was one of the things I was always mindful because at times, um, and of course the difference is you were a nurse when I was in long-term care, I was a CNA. Grueling um, work. Yes, very much so. And it, it was frustrating because a lot of times your muscles ached, you were sweaty, <laughs> understaffed. That was like, yeah. just assume you were understaffed every single day. There was, you know, if they could find a way to send people home, they'd, they'd send people home. Um, and yet for me, it was always extremely important to never, ever allow that stress to shine through to the patient because it's not their fault, you know, they, you know, and I, there were times where I'd get really upset with other CNAs who would feel the same way about being stressed and tired and overworked. And, you know, they just, you know, they'd go into a patient's room and just have that attitude of like, come on, let's go, let's get this over with. And you're like, you know, that's, don't do that to them. They're just, they're at the end of their life. They're trying to just, you know, enjoy what, you know, what life they can. And, you know, there's no, that always really, really bothered me to ever make them feel like they're a burden or a problem. Right. Um, that's actually where me and my wife met. You just met my wife a little bit ago. We mm -hmm. were both CNAs in a nursing home together. And God, next month it's going to be our 10 year anniversary. God, it's been that long, um, which is good. You know, it's a good thing I'm not saying, God, it feels like 30, you know. Right. But, <laughs> I feel the same way. I'll be married 10 years. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that was, would have been not long after we were no longer in class together. Yeah, I think so. Right. Gosh. Boy, time flies. Sometimes you look back and you're like, oh my God, it was that long ago. Um, what uh, the, we're talking about the heart. I always feel like the heart is such a fascinating organ. You're talking about this, like, what, like a pound? It's like a pound Probably. about that. Yeah. A flesh that is muscle and electricity. And before you're even formed as a person, that thing starts beating and it beats constantly, constantly. Till the day you die. Right. Everything you've ever gone through, every stressful situation, every loving situation, everything in your life, that thing's constantly boom, 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 boom. And you can feel it. Yeah, you know, anytime you can take your pulse or you know, you get excited, you can feel your heart racing. Right. And yet I think we we put so little thought into our heart until one day a doctor's like, Hey man, right. you need to watch your heart. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's a lot of what your office handles. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And people don't the now that I'm working with a younger population, what I've discovered is that people don't have a, a really good grasp on what matters in health. Mm -hmm. Like what's a good diet, right? What, um, you know, what stress does, what medication, people don't even know what medications or why they're taking these medications. Um, yeah, I think in healthcare we take for granted what we know mm -hmm. a lot of time, um, but yeah, they just people just a lot of them just don't know like how to take care of their heart. Mm -hmm. Well, I think sometimes that I'm like I feel like I'm right on the verge of having to deal with this, but uh, <laughs> I feel like you know you sort of grow up throughout <clears throat> your life as a kid and then into your. Um, you know, your 20s and your 30s, and you kind of still have that feeling like you're bulletproof when you've right. always eaten whatever you want to eat and drink whatever you want to drink. And, you know, we all go through that period of school and work where you're going on long periods on little amounts of sleep. And and then all of a sudden, one day, all that just catches up to you. And yet, and then all of a sudden, you're in a position where it's like, you know, 
if you want to live longer, you're going to have to redo a lot of the way you do things, the way you eat, the way you, you know, what it is you drink. I've, I'm personally in that situation too, from down the time I was 16 or 17 would just pound Mountain Dew every single day, all day long. And it's just gotten to the point in the last year that I'm like, I don't think I can do that anymore. Like, you know, especially with, um, you know, the, the family history that I have, like, I think every man in my family on both sides have died from some heart related condition. Um, including both my grandfathers. Mm -hmm. So you get to the point where you're like, genetics aren't on my side. <laughs> you know, we're gonna we're gonna have to eventually make some changes here very, very quickly. Right. Um do you do you guys in your office do you handle a lot of that stuff in terms of advising on diet or um <clears throat> not a ton. Uh the nurse practitioners um see people for like a variety of things, but majority of what they do is related to um, CHF, congestive heart failure. Oh, okay. And um, <clears throat> so they'll talk a lot about diet. Uh, we have one nurse practitioner that is been around for a while and has is a wealth of knowledge, um, and she is really good. She's like she wakes up in the middle of the night and mm. like bakes and yeah she's <laughs> she's a firecracker um but not as much as i wish we would um i think in medicine you know medical doctors are taught how to prescribe yeah and dietitians you know, and nurses are usually the ones that do that other like holistic sort of approach mm -hmm. um, where doctors know what to prescribe. Yeah. Yeah. Without <laughs> sticking too much of my food. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's always the problem. Sometimes when you work in a job, you know what you know and yet there's only so much you're supposed Right. Yeah. Right. I've, well, just like I was having palpitations mm -hmm. um, last year, a year before last, and like serious palpitations all the time and um my my primary care physician wanted me to start a medication i was like eh, i'm not you know i don't feel like it's bad enough to do that and then i was at the chiropractor and i mentioned it to him he was like oh well here and he adjusted me sort of in a different way and he was like let me know how that how that works gone Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I would, so I've mentioned it to our electrophysiologists and they're like, yeah, no, mm -hmm. that was a coincidence. Right. You know, and, and uh, my husband who is like Mr. Logic, he was like, no, I agree with them. It was just coincidence. Right. You know? And uh, no, I like it started happening again and I told him and he adjusted me again and I haven't had him since, mm -hmm. but I can't tell patients that. Right. Go to a chiropractor. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell them. Right. But yeah, it's kind of, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, what, um, that's, yeah. It, you know, for as far as we've come in medical science, in research and all that, I still think sometimes we're idiots playing God. I don't mean that to be too on the nose, but it's sort of like, you know, and I understand some of the best doctors 
that I've ever worked with in my life were also some of the most cockiest people I've ever met too. You know, there's that certain level of confidence that comes with being able to do the job at the level they do it. Um, I've had that before. I remember I worked um, uh, in an ortho position where we were post-surge and I'd have people ask me, they would be like, hey, I need to have a hip surgery done. Um, which doctor do you recommend? And my question would always be, which do you want bedside manner or do right. you want your hip done correctly or I shouldn't say correctly, but the best possible. Mm -hmm. And there, cause there, that was always would be two terribly different things. But that aside, I feel like there's still so much about the human body. We don't understand and we just don't know. Um, and not that I have a background in it at all, but especially neurology, like neurology is always fascinating to me, mostly because it's like the great beyond. It's the void that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. I mean, your brain is mostly fat and salt. You know, with electricity running through it, and right. yet we don't understand why it does the things that it does and operates the way that it does and why... Um, or the, the neurotransmitters. Yeah. Like, how does that even work? Yeah. And, you know, so your serotonin is low, so you're depressed, and mm -hmm. then you eat something better or you take a medication that increases it, and then you're... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and what works for one person won't work for the other person yeah Why? yeah and it's so interesting the way like um the studies for those like the clinical study trials they try and do just get such varied results they'll give the same medication to 15 different people and get 15 different reactions to it everything from it fixed everything to might as well have been a placebo it didn't even and that the right. reasons why are so absolutely mind-boggling that's the thing that and again, not that I have a background in it, so I'm probably just talking nonsense, which is fine because <laughs> I've decided that the tagline for my podcast is un unsubstantiated nonsense. So anybody who's going to get mad about what I'm about to say, but I feel like in psychiatry, sometimes that's the problem. I, I would spend a lot of time interacting with patients and it just sort of felt like you'd have a patient who would feel anxious or depressed and the doctor would write them a script and it would work for a while and then it would stop working. So the doctor would up the script and right. you just end up down this path where they just weren't feeling anything at all. You know, that was, and you see that, unfortunately, unfortunately, you see that a lot in these issues where, you know, there's mass shootings. And a lot of times the person who's the shooter was disturbed. And I'm not making a stance on guns right now, one way or another at all. But it was this shocking trend that I've sort of, sort of noticed. And I think the thing that really got me thinking about it was, um, back, what was it, 2006 when the shooting at NIU happened, okay. which for me, like really just threw my world for a whirlwind because I was a student at NIU at the time. I happened to not be on campus when it happened, mm -hmm. but it was just, so I got really, really into following the news story and stuff that came out. And that seemed like that's what was going on with this guy is for years he had been going to, from it sounds like not just one, but several psychiatrists and they kept upping his meds and he got to the point where he was just devoid of empathy or human emotion and was just a robot and we don't know why you know right. still like that 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 whole field is just kind of like i feel like maybe barely scratching the surface at this point mm -hmm. then the whole human body's that way you know um so what if you weren't doing cardiac like if you could jump to another field what would be your what would be the one you'd love to do well, it wouldn't be nursing. Oh, okay. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I fell into nursing. Okay. That's a whole other story. Well, um, tell me about it. 
We got time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I, I went into nursing because uh, back in 1987, I had my daughter and I had a friend and she was going to take a CNA class and she talked me into taking it because it was eight weeks and then we could get out of that class and get a job mm -hmm. making four dollars an hour <laughs> in 1987 <laughs> right right so i was like all right that's better than minimum wage and so that's what i did and then i did um i worked in a nursing home for about a year and then i went into home health and just would do like long shifts um where they have like short shifts where you like go in and do, give baths and stuff but i would do like long shifts and and be with these people in their home and, mm. and take them places or get them ready for bed usually and then um i decided that i would go back to school i wanted to get a divorce and i thought i could be a nurse back then uh, rockford public schools had a program um where you could get your lpn in 11 months so i thought well i can do that for 11 months mm -hmm. so i did um so it was a means to an end of, okay you know it just makes the most sense i can get through it quickly i can make money to take care of myself and my kids so I did, um, mm -hmm. and then I was at LPN for 10, at least 10 years, 12 years, something like that. And then um, my husband, my current husband is really big on education, and so he kind of encouraged me. So I just took one class at a time. My employer paid for it. Uh, they had a good tuition reimbursement. So I thought, well, you know, I don't really want to keep doing this, <laughs> but it's what I know, so yeah. I'll get my... Uh, associates in nursing so I got that and now of course I'm getting my bachelor's um, because my employer will pay for it well then do it <laughs> right yeah but um, no if I were to do anything else I would be some type of artist um, but I don't know how I would make money at it. So that's the problem most artists uh, run into. Right. I hate to be the pragmatist. But, um, <laughs> well, I have one of those at home. So. <laughs> what are you going to do with an art degree? Right. I'm not paying for that. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned because that was one of the things that I did want to bring up um, on the podcast because that's one of the things I see you post a lot on Instagram is some of your mm -hmm. artwork and stuff like yeah. that. Is that something that stems from? all the way back to childhood just enjoyed doing that yep yeah yeah um we i would draw a lot when i was a kid and i think my dad asked me when i was really young what i wanted to be when i grow up and i said a mom and then i said an artist mm -hmm. and um and then of course you know life happens and you have kids right. and you forget about yourself and uh, a few years ago i Stum sort of stumbled upon um, this uh, Facebook group, um, janedavenport.com. She sells art supplies, and I was hooked. Mm -hmm. And um, I decided that no matter what, I am doing art or drawing or painting or something creative for 15 minutes every day. Okay. And then that 15 minutes turned into like, hours 
hours in my what now I dubbed my art studio, um, but it's really guest room. And uh, yeah, I love it, love it, love it, love it. That is so cool. I like I like a lot of your paintings. I think Thank they're they're, they're really really cool. Um, yeah, there's something about that that some people just get. I'm very I don't know how this happened. Um, my we, if you were to like spend time and get to know um, me and my wife, you would almost not understand why we're together, because one of us is totally right brain and one of us is totally left brain. <laughs> and it almost sounds like you have that a little bit with your husband too. Oh, yeah, yeah, you <laughs> oh, know, yeah. Um, because I'm I'm very much into art and creativity, and my wife, she's like, I mean, she has a bachelor's degree in accounting. She's very uh. one after another, and I don't know how my daughter, who's now eight years old, somehow has both. Somehow she loves doing math. She, it'll be a Saturday night and she'll bring me a blank sheet of paper and ask me to draw her math problems. And then <laughs> an hour later she's in Aww. drawing this big, huge picture that I'm like, wow, I wish I thought I was a pretty decent at pencil work, but I wish I was that good at eight years old. Uh -huh. um, there's something very cathartic about it. You know, even if you're not to anybody else, you may be creating something that doesn't have any value or isn't interesting, but there's just something about that. You know, it's almost like when you sit down, especially in the, you probably grew, there's nothing better than having a blank canvas in front of you. <laughs> like that just feels amazing. Like, wow, I, I literally have this entire format in front of me for me to create whatever it is I want to. And there's something about focusing on that that just like lets everything else go. Like, like just for whatever time period you is. And then I can understand why it started at 15 minutes and then steadily became more and more and more. Um, mostly paint work? Um, I'll do a little bit of everything. I like mixed media, which mm -hmm. is using watercolor and um, watercolor pencils, oil, acrylic, markers, crayon, I mean, really anything that will, that will put color down I'll try. Mm -hmm. I'll use it. Um, so do I have a favorite media? Nope. Um, just use whatever is available. I probably use colored pencils the most um, because I'll like draw you know a face with the colored pencil. Mm -hmm. one, one I did an online class and she talked about like just not using an erasable pencil and just do your sketches with something that you can't erase. Yes. And mm -hmm. then you have to live with that imperfection and you get these little sketchy lines that, you know, kind of look really cool and it looks loose and like you know what you're doing yeah. when you're really just sort of playing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think most most artists are doing, you know. I right. just, you know, some of the stuff that gets that we look back on some of the most iconic art pieces I wonder like is that artist just screwing around and then people were like that's really good and they're like I meant to do that you know? <laughs> <laughs> right well I mean if you think about like all the great masters like Monet or Van Gogh um, or uh, some others like how many pieces did they actually make yeah compared to those ones that we really know about mm -hmm. so they had all of these failures yeah. failures right and these pieces that they probably didn't feel like were what they intended them to be mm -hmm. but then someone else looks at adam and goes that's a masterpiece has their everybody has their own reaction to it right you know um 
I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine on Super Bowl Sunday because I, I had hanging up in my hallway um, the painting of uh, Nighthawks, the famous Nighthawks painting by um, Hopper, Edward Hopper, which is, it's iconic in the sense that if I say it's the one word, like the people are sitting in the diner at night. Oh, yes. You know, that, okay. so you know that one. Yeah. Yes. Most people don't know what it's called, but they recognize the painting right. when they see mm -hmm. it. Um, and I had seen that painting a lot throughout my life. It's such an iconic piece of work. You mm -hmm. see it everywhere. Um, it wasn't until I was in college, and when I was originally in college, before you and I met, I was a history major, um, before I switched over to the medical side. And one of my humanities professors went over that painting and was talking about it. And the thing that struck me about it is the professor had said that Edward Hopper, who did that painting, he began working on that painting on in the evening of the day that Pearl Harbor was attacked. And so when I look at that wow. painting, it kind of gives that sense of like, that's sort of a dark street and there's people sitting in this diner. Nobody's talking, but nobody really wants to be alone. Like it had a whole more, so much more of an emotional impact when you right. look at, especially those of us who have lived through 9-11, who kind of understood that feeling of nobody mm -hmm. quite knew what to say to each other, but you knew you, somehow wanted to be together, wanted to keep an eye on each other, even if it's just proximity, comfort, some right. sort of. And so for me, that that's part of the reasons why I love that painting is when I, when I look at it, I get that emotional attachment to it. Now, I was talking to my friend about it because he didn't know that story and he liked it for completely different reasons. It was, and it, that's one of the things that I think is so cool about art. It's just what people take from it. Right. You know, um, what, um, that was one of the things I always felt about the Mona Lisa is I really felt like Da Vinci was probably just painting a board picture of his wife to make fun of her. And it turned into an iconic piece. It's like, this is you. This is what you look like when you look at my art. This is you. And everybody's like, oh my God, she's so beautiful. Who is she? Yeah. My, I do plan on definitely taking an art history class. Definitely. Um, once I'm done with this just stupid bachelor's class <laughs> um, and get to like live my life again. Um, because stuff like that like is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. Like, what is it about these these pictures that have come down through history that touch touch people in such a way that it becomes this iconic piece of our collective history? Mm -hmm. Like, I was, and we see that in all kinds of things. Um, like after uh, Bohemian Rhapsody movie came oh, out. Oh God, I love that movie. Okay, so oh, God. <laughs> let me just say, I am a huge fan of Queen. Uh huh. In particular, Freddie Mercury. We'll get along well. And I feel absolutely vindicated after all of these years of singing his praises and everyone looking at me like I was like, oh, what? Oh, God. Um, yeah, there uh -huh. she goes again. <laughs> and now, once again, Queen is on top. Right. Right. And you know... I gotta admit, in a way, I'm one of those people you can feel vindicated about because I'm a bit of a bandwagon. Like, I was one of those people who grew up, like, I liked Queen, but I was never like, oh my God, like, I, I've i got to put Queen on, like, right now. You know, I always love Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, that's like, that song, How Can You Not? Um, 
I, I firmly believe that if I ever meet somebody and I'm not sure if we're going to be friends or not, I ride in the car with them with Bohemian Rhapsody on <laughs> and how the next nine minutes goes is going to determine our friendship. If they sing Galileo, hi, right. low, okay, we're great. We're going right. to get I know every single yeah. word. Perfect. Um, yeah. but, but what I was saying was like that song, you know, this creative process that he went through has become now a, like, it, it, it will go down in history as one of the best rock songs ever. Like, right. you, it, that was the kind of song that, like, back in the day, you know, when it came on the radio, like, you went into work late oh, because you, you had to finish, to finish listening to it. <laughs> you know, that was, it's that kind of song. And now, um, you know, he got to, they, um, but that was Freddie's baby. Like, he had that in his head and was able to put it out into the world mm -hmm. and before that this is what i love about creativity is that before that moment it didn't exist yes yes right yes like are these these women that i draw i draw a face she didn't exist mm -hmm. until i started drawing her. right so i can't get it wrong right because she is what she's going to be. Mm -hmm. Right? Agreed. So now she now she lives. Now she is is this created little thing on this paper and she didn't use speed up. Yeah. You you basically get to be God. Yeah. You get to exactly. determine and shape and you're just like God, you're infallible in that regard. You can however you however you wish to do it. Whether other people are like it or not, it's a different story. But in that right. exact moment, it's right. yeah, you're totally totally yeah. in control. Well I think that that um, God you know, I we don't need to get into a religious discussion. <laughs> but that's a whole other podcast. Right, yeah. <laughs> but when he created the world I mean, the very beginning of the Bible, mm -hmm. God created. Yeah. And we're made in his image and we're created to create. Mm -hmm. And so I think no matter what we do, baking or um, even what Jamie does, creating a spreadsheet or, oh, yeah. you know, it's still, it's, it's putting into the world something that wasn't there before mm -hmm. i just think it's amazing one of my favorite artists um his name is brian michael bendis who's a writer and it he, he's one of those people who's a rock star to a very small cross section because he's a comic book writer okay you know to people yeah. who aren't into comic even people who are into comic books a lot of times don't notice the name at the beginning of the page that says who wrote it um but i love him and i love the thing he always used to say because he's really really active on social media takes questions for fans all the time and one of the things he loves to say is go forth create something that didn't exist yesterday and i i love that i yeah. love that like whether it's you know whether it's writing whether it's drawing whether it's painting whether just like you said whether it's cooking whether it's you know like you said my wife who does computer programming and creates programs to her that that that's a whole nother level of creativity right it always amazes me the ones that Whatever form of artwork it is that ends up incredibly iconic, typically wasn't iconic in its time. 
typically like years and sometimes even generations later, somebody looks back and says, you know, that was pretty awesome. That was really, really cool. Uh, go, don't get me wrong. Freddie Mercury was pretty well regarded in his time. I mean, Queen was huge, you know. Yes. Not so much in America, though. Right. Yeah. It was a big yeah. thing in England. Definitely a big thing in England. Um, and going back to it, just by, it was so funny. Like, I always enjoyed Queen. And then I, my wife and I sat down one day and watched the movie. It was like for the next week, all I wanted to listen to was Queen. And I listened to so many tracks from Queen I'd never even heard of before. Uh-huh. I'm like, I'm just downloading this whole album. And Freddie's just going to sing in my ear all day long. And that's mm-hmm. his range. Oh, my God. You listen to... In, I always enjoy those bands, and I get, not that I'm a huge U2 fan, but U2 is kind of that way in terms of being very experimental, mm-hmm. is how he could do something like a song like Radio Gaga, and then he could do another song that would almost, and not just for him, I mean the entire band, would almost sound like it's from a completely different band was doing that song. Right. And yet still somehow you can tell that that's Freddie Mercury's voice. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. It's mind-boggling. Well, I think one thing that um, the reason for that with them is probably because they would, um, like, uh, Another One Bites the Dust. That was a John Deacon song. Mm -hmm. So it's heavy bass. Yeah. And so, and, like, each one of them wrote songs, Mm -hmm. and they you could tell, like, this is... This is their spin. Yeah. You know, so I think that's why you can always, like, how they had that range of different sort of genres or not genres, but. Mm -hmm. Crazy little thing called Love. That was a song I was trying to think of. Like, you take that and Radio Gaga and put them next to each other. You'd almost think it wasn't the same band. Right. Except for Freddie's voice. Mm -hmm. But that was one of the things that was was so great about them. Um, Like, a lot of people my age. We got introduced to Queen when the song Bohemian Rhapsody was in the movie Wayne's World. Yeah. Which I'm sure you caught the reference. There's nothing better than when you have, um, oh God, Mike Myers, who played Wayne in that Mm -hmm. movie, and the famous scene where they're in his gremlin driving through Aurora, Illinois, and Bohemian Mm -hmm. Rhapsody's playing. And then you fast forward to the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, and Mike Myers is playing. The record producer. Right. Who's sitting in his office who's just listened to Bohemian Rhapsody for the first time. And he's like, this is total shit. I can't put this out there. It's too long. And he says the line, this isn't the kind of car song that teenagers put on in their car and headbang to. I about uh, fell off my chair laughing. My wife didn't get it because she, yeah, my wife had never seen Wayne's World. Oh. But I, I literally had to pause and I was laughing so hard. I'm like, that is like so perfect. Not just for the, the fact that it was Mike Myers, but giving an impression of the way Queen was viewed at the time from the industry versus what they became iconic-wise. You know, (laughs) yeah, definitely go back back and catch that scene. It is absolutely hysterical that he's the one who says that line. Um, But there was... Freddie Mercury kind of had the thing that I think, unfortunately, so many great artists had is that he definitely had a self-destructive streak. Yeah, I've talked about this before on a couple other podcasts, and so many of the... The greats, and not even musicians. I mean, like Van Gogh, um, some of my personal favorites, like Jimi Hendrix, and even like Kurt Cobain. It was like the same thing that was driving them. Right. Ultimately, undid them. With Freddie, it wasn't so much alcohol and drugs that w- that wasn't his undoing. It doesn't seem to be like he was ever like out of control. It was just a lot of, you know, promiscuous things that were going on at the time before we really mm-hmm. understood what AIDS was. Right. But. Um, 
I got to imagine that somebody like Freddie Mercury or somebody like Leonardo da Vinci would be the most annoying neighbors on the planet. <laughs> you know, like any of those... Michelangelo. Like, yeah, yeah. Any of those frantic sort of neurotic artists would just, oh, God, they'd just drive you insane if they lived in the apartment above you. Um, what does... Um, well, I think, like, for creative people, I, I just wonder if... Or like people with you know super high high IQs or different are they on like are they bordering on madness? Makes you wonder. Almost, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, Van Gogh had mental illness. Yeah. Um, he painted what was a Starry Night during uh, uh, hospitalization. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, what is it that drives that? Because. Um, I think some of them are so focused on, some creatives can be so focused on getting that perfect thing, mm-hmm. creating that perfect thing, and then they create something that's not what they had envisioned, and yeah. Wow. They definitely exist on a different plane. Right. You know? Right. Um, I may be butchering the heck out of what I'm about to just say. Um, but going back to what we were saying about neurology, I was listening to this um, psychologist. I guess not a psychologist, a neurologist who was on this podcast one time. And he was talking about how in terms of mapping brain waves, like typically when we're asleep, we are functioning on what are called alpha waves within our brain Mm -hmm. and then when we're awake and like we're doing now doing a podcast we're functioning on what are called beta waves and what one of the things that they've figured out is people who are extremely talented at something have this way of while they're awake being able to transition back into the alpha wave which is almost what we consider when somebody's in the zone Right. You know, and the one example that um, I remember this guy used in the podcast is he was specifically talking about Michael Jordan. Um, and Michael Jordan was one of those guys who, you know, we regard as one of the greatest basketball players who ever lived. He wasn't the tallest, he wasn't the fastest, but he just had this way of getting in the zone where, like, you know, and it was the same thing like anything we would say in sports with someone being clutch, you know. And real, reality, what is they're doing what they've done a million times before? It's just the pressure on the crowd don't get to them. Like, that's completely blocked out. To them, it wouldn't matter if there's 5 million people watching or they're in the backyard by themselves doing it. They just do it. And I, I, I've started to think of that a lot with artists. If there aren't, like, you know, sort of a way where they sort of get into that sort of zone. And, and I'm sure on some level, and I don't even know if this is what, what I'm saying is true. It could be completely unsubstantiated nonsense, um, just like the podcast says. Mm-hmm. But... Um, you know, when you're doing something and you're doing something creative and you're just kind of blocking everything else out and just kind of having that cathartic period, if there isn't some level of that there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I've had moments where, oh, gosh, and this is what keeps me going back is the pure joy that will well up in me at certain times where I'm just laying down color and I see like one spot on there where this orange is blending into the blue and it didn't make brown and but it's like super defined or just it and it just is like Man, and then you try to do it again. It's like, no, I made brown. And um, 
that like I've never experienced anything like it before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish it hadn't taken me 50 years, you know, to get to it. Right. But I'm so glad I'm there now. Yes. Like, once I get into that that creative mindset and I just go and I'm not thinking about doing it right or doing it wrong I'm just doing and yeah something really cool comes out of it mm-hmm. you know problem is like when you try to show it to someone and it will never convey that feeling no 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 not at all uh-huh. you're like look look yeah. at this part <laughs> <laughs> and they're like uh-huh. yeah. yeah okay okay <laughs> and family is the worst oh god yeah like I mean, not my personal family, but like different members of my extended family will be like, oh, yeah. That's really great. And you're like, oh, man. All right. You have no appreciation. Why don't you understand what I went through to get this? Yeah. There are times I wonder that, too. And I've even had that where I'm like, um, and having gone through similar to, to what you have. Where you'll sit down and look at a famous piece of art. You know, one of the, I remember one time I was just a... And I think part of the problem is is that pictures, especially pictures of art on the internet, never do it justice. They never do it justice. And I was thinking about that one time. I was on my iPad and I was scrolling through artwork and I had um, Da Vinci's Madonna on the Rocks. And thankfully, it was such a high quality scan that I could like zoom in and you could like see the brush marks on Mm -hmm. it. And you just sit there and stare at one like one hand and one brush mark and just kind of ponder it for a minute and thinking about this would have been the late 1400s when he would have done this. So you're talking, you know, over 500 years ago, sitting in a sweaty studio in Florence somewhere, you know, with paint and working on that. And if on any level, he sort of felt the same thing as you're feeling now. And if he's feeling and if he felt that and you're sort of feeling the same way looking at it, that's almost like a, form of telepathy isn't it almost like a form of like speaking over the course of centuries to somebody sure i went off in the weeds there but (laughs) i think you get what i mean yeah yeah Yeah. i i think i mean i i think all through history we're we're somehow connected in some sort of way Mm -hmm. um you know like Again, I talk about religion a lot because it's a big part oh, of yeah. who I am. It's mm-hmm. my core. But I've been reading in First John, and he talks about, and he says, I write this so that you will have fellowship with us. Mm-hmm. And I got to thinking about it, like I'm, I'm working really slowly through this book, and I'm looking up all the Greek, you know, all the Greek words and what do they mean and everything. And I got to thinking, like, that's so cool. Right. Like he wrote this 2000 years ago mm-hmm. and here I am reading it and I can feel that connection with him, with God. Like he felt this and now all these years later, right. he saved those words for me so that I right. can get that also. That's, you know, it's the exact same emotion. One of my favorite books is a book by Stephen King. Um, called On Writing, which is a nonfiction that he wrote about the art of writing. Oh. Um, and at one point there, he wrote in there, I remember he began this chapter with, I'm writing this right now. You are not in the same room with me. You are not in the same state. There, you're probably not in the same year. And enough time has passed. I may even be dead. But 
these words are for you. They are directed at you. And right now we are in this moment together, even though we have never met. Right. Even though we may never meet. And that was like, I don't know, it felt like such a philosophical mind screw to me that I'm just like, <laughs> whoa, that is. But yeah, it's the, it's the same way. And I feel that way, especially it, it, it's weird. Even the more ancient it gets, the more and more ancient it gets. I was watching this um, show just the other day on Netflix called Meat Eater, which, by the way, is one of my favorite shows, which is, a, it, it, by all accounts, it's a hunting show, um, but it deals a lot with um, the philosophy behind it. And at one point in time, he's fishing off a tributary of the Amazon River in Guyana, and they he's got some local guides who have taken him down there, and as they get off the river, and they're in this area where there probably isn't a human settlement for hundreds of miles of jungle away. I mean, really, really way out there. And they come ashore, and one of the guides takes them over to where these rocks are. And on these rocks, there are these paintings of hieroglyphs. And even them, I think they, the guides were Amaran Indians. They, they've known about that those have been there, like, ancestrally for a long time. But they don't know what they mean or who painted them. They could be thousands of years old. They could be 10,000. But at some point in time, somebody felt the need to sit down and paint on those rocks and yet it's still there today for us to look at for you to put your fingers on it and touch it and feel the texture know at some point in time somebody thought this was important right somebody was trying to convey a message to them it meant something and we don't know you know maybe it was we have this tendency i think in archaeology whenever we don't understand something to say it's ceremonial <laughs> i think we <laughs> right. do that a lot he could have been writing like listen ted's a jerk you know <laughs> we, we don't know but the more ancient that stuff gets, the more it's like almost fascinating. And I think that um, sometimes as Americans, we have a hard time understanding that because our yeah. country is so young. Yeah. You know, and I haven't been there. I mean, well, technically I've been to Europe. I've been to Yugoslavia, but I was in like third grade. Um, but I've always wanted to go to like even like London or like Paris and walk mm -hmm. around areas and you're touching buildings that are thousands of years old. Right. To us, if a house is 100 years old, it's ancient, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah, it's really, really, really crazy. Have you... Have you been overseas? Yeah. Yeah. Um, for my fiftieth birthday, my husband took me to France. Oh. Or not France, Italy. Oh, um, where in Italy? Uh, we did Rome. That's right. Florence and Venice. I spent like um, a week, both vicariously living through you and also extremely <laughs> angry with you at the same time. Aww. Like full of. Re I've always wanted to go, but go, go on. Tell me, go. tell me, tell me. Um, well, and then we were in Ireland last year. Oh my god! And then we're going to France this month. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but so yeah, I think traveling in Europe has ruined travel in the U.S. for me. Because it takes forever to get anywhere here? Well, that, and it's just, it's young. Yeah. You know, like you yeah. said, and it's sort of our cities, while each city is unique in its own way, it's pretty much all the same. It's semi-commercialized. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but in Europe, like when we were in, <laughs> when we were in Florence, like we kept... You know, you were walking, and we'd turn a corner, and we'd be like, oh, look. I mean, we literally kept stopping mm -hmm. and go, look at that. <laughs> look at that. It was like every corner we turned. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Florence was just everything everything oh. i need to go back yeah because <laughs> um, we didn't go into the ufc and or the um we did go see the david and that that was actually the whole 
reason mm -hmm. I wanted to go to Italy yeah. to see the David. Yeah. And I cried. Oh, man. It was incredible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like Europe is just unique and there's beauty in everywhere. Mm -hmm. Beauty everywhere. Ireland was a completely different experience than Italy. Um, it's there was there were hardly any tourists. Mm -hmm. Like in all of my pictures, like there's no people. Yeah. There's no people. <laughs> but there are there, there are castles everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> everywhere. And there's ruins everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like you're just driving along and there's some ruins. And so you stop and you think who lived here? Right. What were they doing? And you know, abbeys and like the ancient um, they call beehive huts. Oh, okay. Do you yeah, know yeah, about yeah. those? Uh -huh. They're like out on the Dingle Peninsula, and like they were built by probably um, Vikings, and they only had rocks. There's yeah. Nothing grows out there. There's right. no trees, mm -hmm. so there's just rocks, and they build these. <clears throat> that are still standing, these water shedding structures made out of rock. There's no mortar. It's insane. Uh, right. It's insane. Like, how'd you do that? Right. Like, oh, gosh. <laughs> that was um, one of the places I've always wanted to go was Rome. I've mm -hmm. always wanted to go to Rome. The Castel San Angelo. Just, oh, my God. Um, the, the Pantheon in Rome. I mean, you were there. Yeah. Yes. You had to have been there. Yeah. The most amazing thing about that was is you it it's technically the oldest church in Rome, but it was built prior to Christianity. It was right. it was converted. It was a pagan temple. Mm -hmm. um, has the Oculus in the roof. One of the things that engineers and scientists cannot figure out about that building, which fascinates the living crap out of me, is that at the time they built this, they didn't have modern day cement like we do now. They have their own version of cement, and yet now hundreds, and I don't remember exactly what year it was built, but after all these centuries that have gone by, the cement that holds that building together is not brittle, it's actually still hardening. And they don't know why. Chemically, they don't understand what's happening. But somehow they're like, mm -hmm. we got this. You know, <laughs> We have this tendency to look back on past people as idiots. They weren't. They were what they were for their time. Right, they were craftsmen. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And, oh, Got any of that kind of stuff. You look at the Sphinx or the Pyramid or the Great Wall of China. Some of the stuff that they managed to do that today we're like, well, it'd be great if we could build one thing that doesn't fall down in 10 years. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Or put some character into something. Oh, yes. Yes. The architecture. Oh, my God. You know, they had so many, just like you said, craftsmen and people who were so skilled at what they did. I think that's one of the things that I think we lose in the United States because, um, and not that I'm bad-mouthing our country, it's mm -hmm. just culturally where we've ended up. In the modern-day world where everything's prefab, slap it up as cheap as possible and put a coat of paint on it and move on with your day. Right. You know, we don't have a lot of things that we can look back on as hundreds of years as ruins, you know, of something that was, hopefully it's longer than hundreds of years. I mean, I guess the one exception would be like, you know, the Lincoln Memorial or, you know, the Washington Monument, something like that. but. We didn't exist in a period where, you know, we were here for hundreds and thousands of years building things, you know. Um, but that gives you an idea. You think about how far away Italy is from Ireland. If you live in the United States, it's not that far. Like when you just straight draw a line on a map, 
as far as the crow flies, it's not that far. Right. But they didn't have transportation like we did. So they, the people remained isolated and had very, very diverse cultures mm-hmm. and had to adapt to their own environment. Now I want to go to Italy. Yeah. I highly recommend Yeah. Like, and actually, my cousin and I were talking about this last year. She goes to Ireland and the United Kingdom, like, every year. Mm-hmm. Um, she's hooked. Yeah. And... <laughs> Literally, this one. Um, but we were talking about how much cheaper it is oh, to yeah. travel in Europe yeah. versus here. Mm-hmm. Like, if you travel here, is not cheap. No. Um, but you can get a flight to Europe. Like, if you can find deals that are pretty cheap, and then there's public transportation. You don't need to rent a car. You you can stay in a cheaper place. I mean, there. Are, there's definitely ways to travel outside of the U.S. Um, or over to Europe that are not expensive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The plane rides are the worst. I've only done it once, but it was like, I remember it was like... Well, you take Dramamine oh. and you sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I struggled with it because at the time I was in third grade, so I would have been like <laughs> nine and we right. had it. We and had, and we, 10 hours out of your life at that oh, time gosh. was. <laughs> and I remember it was overnight. Um, mm-hmm. And it was like a 13-hour flight. It was from Newark, New Jersey to Zagreb, Yugoslavia. And I just remember like trying so hard to sleep on this plane, but you couldn't. And even at that age, I kept thinking in my head, I'm going to pressurize metal tube going 600 miles an hour. <laughs> And you would, when you would like look out and it was night, but you could just way below you see the dark ocean and you're like... If a spark plug goes out, it's over. <laughs> Start thinking about how quickly all of this could end. Thank God flights have such the great record that they do because right. I would never fly in a million years, which is totally illogical. Um, <laughs> one place you want to go to that you haven't been to yet. Hmm. You're like, that's got to be next on the list. Well, Paris, and we're mm-hmm. going this yeah. month. Um, <laughs> so that's... Checking off another box. Um, Probably, I really want to go back to Italy. I'd love to go to the Holy Land. Oh, yeah. Um, My husband was stationed in Egypt for a while, and he will not ever go back. Oh, really? Yeah. He said all of those places smell like shit. Um, (laughs) Well, if you've ever been to Tijuana... (laughs) I, I, I feel them, trust me. Um, but so if I do like a Holy Land tour or something, he's definitely not going. I'll mm-hmm. have to find friends. Um, but I think that would be pretty amazing. Will I do it? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just because there's, I hate doing tours. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I don't like being trapped. Yeah. And like being on a bus with a bunch of people, I don't think I could do it. And I don't think there's a better way to go to the Holy Land. I don't really know. I haven't mm-hmm. looked into it. But if he's not going, he's like my rock, my protector. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, I feel very safe when I travel with him and not as safe when I don't. So Well, if you yeah. get serious about going, let me know. I'll put you in touch with my parents. They've gone a couple times. Have they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And it, it, I remember talking to my mom about it. Um, and it was sort of like what you and I were just discussing. Like, we have this sense of 100 years being old. The Europeans have a sense of something being several hundred years old is old. And yet, in the Holy Land, it's like, yeah, that's 2,000 years old. That building right there, those set of rocks, that bench is 2,000 years right. old. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, And I'd imagine it's even worse when you go to Egypt. 
you know, you got some stuff there. I mean, people, people don't realize the pyramids yeah. are 4,000 years old. Right. They built those things 4,000 years ago. I mean, oh my God. Like, we'd think people 4,000 years ago, you're talking about the most educated person from our standpoint, we would say had the education of like a third grader. And yet they're like, yeah, we're just going to build this shit. We're just going to, it's going to be a massive triangle and it's going to look beautiful and be perfectly engineered and it's going to yeah. stand for 4,000 well, years. I have a friend who um, is... How he became this, I don't know, but he is the expert on the Great Pyramid of Giza. Really? Yes. Whoa. Yeah. Um, I'll have to find his, he gave me his card and he's got a website and um, it's the American Institute of Pyramidology or something like that. But he has a whole theory that I don't know anything about but other it than wasn't aliens was it that's not no, what saying. okay good no, he, who, what was he telling me now he thinks it was built by someone like i don't remember who he said it, but it all points to like the way it's like laid out in the world he says it points to the birth of Christ or the resurrection of Christ or the death of Christ something along those lines okay I don't know I even, am no expert even though, they, even though they were built 2,000 years before Christ was born right <laughs> okay like yes. they knew like prophecy wise like, yeah okay yeah this is his theory I yeah. Okay. You'll have to <laughs> yeah. Give me that information. Now I'm interested. I'm like, I, I got to see what's going on. This is, I'm not skeptical at this point. I'm just more intrigued. Curious, like, right. Because I want to know how you came to this conclusion. Um, again, not in a skeptic way. Just, oh, okay. Haven't heard that one before. Right. Yeah. Uh, that was new to me. <laughs> that was new to me. Well, it's because, God, isn't the, the pyramids and the Great Wall of China are the two man-made things that are we can see from space. Right. Like from the international space. And if you've ever even gone on Google Maps and just like gone over to Africa and Egypt and start to zoom in, you're like, oh my God, there's the pyramids. Like how massive they are even from space. You're like, oh. Of course, it was probably easier back then. They didn't have unions. They would just like, <laughs> like get to work. No, they had slaves. Yeah, exactly. Get to work. I remember Louis C.K., who's a comedian, did a bit about that one time where he was talking about how the ancients and how they were able to build these great things that we can't anymore. And he said, well, back then it was easy. You just threw human death and suffering at it until it was done. And then, right. boom, it was gorgeous, which right. is sad and crude, but true. Like, mm -hmm. that pretty much nails it. Um, you'll have to... Um, yeah, I want to see pictures when you go to Paris. So I've always wanted to go to the Louvre, oh, and I know God, that's like, I can't wait. and I know that's one of the more modern things in France. You know, apart from you know several of the other stuff. And I'm interested to see what condition the cathedral is now after the fire. Yeah, yeah, I I know you can't, we can't go in, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm very interested in getting some pictures of it. And that was one of the things, like when that when the spire was burning. I was just like, no, right? I, yeah. I didn't get to see it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So now I'm like on a quest to, okay, what are, you know, what do I need to see? I do need to go to London because mm -hmm. um, I haven't been there and I need to see those things. Um, when am I going to Russia? Okay. Seeing like that, I don't know what it is, that big. Oh, in Moscow. Yeah. The... Yeah, it's probably got an actual technical right. name that us ignorant Americans are like. The one that looks like 
spirally right that looks something. like dairy queen cult. there you go <laughs> that's better than what i was going to say cool <laughs> glad you came up with that <laughs> one of the one yeah one of the ones that's always been on my list has been japan i've always wanted to go to japan um mm. I was, as a history major at Rockvale and then at NIU, it was American history, but then I also, while I was there, really got into ancient Japanese history. And it's amazing, they've got in the, the town of Kyoto, which is up in the mountains, in the main island of Japan, they have a, what's, a, it's basically a water festival they have there every year, because there's this river that comes flowing down out of the mountains. And even to this day, in modern day, you can walk up to this river and get a cup of water out of it, and it is ten times more pure than any bottled water you will buy in a store. And any of the, you know, and it, I'm sure some people have seen, like, the pictures of, like, the cherry blossoms and the snow-capped mountains in the background, right. and there's there's so much history behind all that. It's absolutely gorgeous. That's, that's the one that's on my list. My wife wants to go too, but that's more because she's a video gamer and wants to get to Tokyo and check out all the <laughs> modern stuff that they have where I'm right. like, let's go up there where they used to shoot each other with bow and arrow. That sounds way cooler, <laughs> you know. Um, we'll see it in the game, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's exactly what we're going to go with. Um, have you ever had any interest in, like, your own genealogy in um, countries where you came from? and A little bit. Um I don't think my background is like super interesting. Mm -hmm. um, we did, my husband and I did DNA uh, okay. tests a few years ago and I had absolutely no surprises whatsoever. <laughs> um, my grandmother was born in Sweden. My great grandmother was born in Germany. All of us have German in us. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then like we have some hillbilly, um, yeah, isn't that... <laughs> I'm not... did, that, did that show up on the heredity report? It's like, right, it well, was... you're 20% German, 20% um, Swedish, and 20% right. Kentucky. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my grandmother grew up in the hills of Tennessee. Oh, okay. Like, oh, God, even The worse. hills. Oh, okay. The hills yeah. have eyes kind of thing. Mm, yeah. Deliverance. Yeah. <laughs> One of ten kids. And... So I think my grandmother's story is really interesting, but... Um, yeah, I like. I don't think we have. I think we are probably peasants or something, or you know, hard workers. Mm -hmm. Like my maiden name is Carter. Okay. So we were, we weren't gentry. I'm sure. Yeah. Of it, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, we all come from something. Right. Um, I've always wanted to. I have a like most people. They look back on their ancestry and they're like, oh, well, it's how many, how many generations, generations, generations back. Mm -hmm. Um prior to coming to the United States. Mine's relatively recent. It was my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather fought in the British Army in World War I um, and then came after the war with him and his wife, emigrated to the United yes. States and ended yeah. up in Illinois because he was a coal miner and ended up in central Illinois working in the oh, coal mines. Okay. Um, and it, it's interesting how the, the town he came from, Bargood in Wales, like Finch is a semi-common name there and I've always wanted to like forget the tour guides I've just wanted to take a flight to London take a bus there get out in downtown and just walk around and asking if anybody knew anybody with the last name Finch and meet <laughs> up with them and start tracing lines like like what are you my fifth cousin sixth cousin um I had Chris Davis on the podcast last time and he did one of those 23 Me's and found that he had like I think it was like third or fourth cousins who lived in Sweden 
Chris, if you're listening, I'm sorry I'm misremembering the story right now. And actually got in contact with them. And they came um, this past winter and visited. We came to the United States and spent some time with them. And it's amazing. He had said amazing how similar they were. Like my buddy Chris, he's a corrections officer. And he found that his relative over there is a police officer. (laughs) Like it was just like, like, wow. Yeah. What... um, What's one place you've been to you'd recommend never going to again? Like, have you ever visited somewhere and been like, New Orleans? (laughs) (laughs) New Orleans? It's just not what you thought it was going to be? Well, it was actually what I thought it was was going to be. Yeah. I had really no desire to. I mean, in the past, I thought, oh, that would be interesting to go to. Um, I've been. Yeah. I've been. You know, (laughs) yeah, it's, it was just, yeah. Dirty. Um, you know, a lot of these cities that you go to, um, like, there's so many homeless people. Yeah. And, you know, that's a problem in and of itself. And, but, like, it, it, it really affects, like, the experience of the tourist. Oh, yeah. Um, because you can't, you know, if you ignore it, then you, you know, have this <laughs> guilt that, I know that exactly ignoring what you this mean. you know we went to savannah um a few years ago and i am an early riser and uh so i wanted to go out and get some coffee and then go sit in one of the squares mm-hmm. well i couldn't because there was a homeless person on every bench oh my lord yeah sleeping wow. and yeah, yeah. so yeah, some of the places in the United States, you see that more. One thing I saw in Italy a lot was like um, hawkers. Oh, okay. Is that the right word? Like they're selling little trinkets, trinkets, and, yeah. and um, they won't bop, they won't leave you alone. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but where would I not go back to? Yeah, other than New Orleans, I don't know. The um, it's funny you mentioned that. I remember several years ago now I remember I went to Daytona Beach for like a long weekend on like a family trip and when you're actually like on Daytona Beach and actually on the boardwalk and all the hotels and all the restaurants and all the glitz and the glam it's absolutely beautiful but you go like more than a block or two inland from that and it's just mile upon mile of ghetto because you have this really long stretch of all these like I said all these hotels and restaurants and resorts and amusements that are all employed by people who are making minimum wage who can right. barely afford an apartment. And it's like, it, it felt like there was all of this beauty. And then once you went beyond that, it was just poverty for miles yeah. on end. And it really gave you this sense like everything was a veneer. Everything was a thin veneer painted mm-hmm. over something decaying underneath. And Yeah. Hawaii is kind of like that. Is it really? Oahu, yeah. yeah. Um, Honolulu is different because it's more expensive and but like we stayed um one time when we were out there visiting my son we stayed up along the west coast of oahu and um the further we drove like the worse it got not bad but you know there's just rundown cars and some graffiti Mm -hmm. and you know unkept homes and stuff like that yeah Gosh, that seems because it's such a beautiful place. I haven't been there, mm-hmm. um, but I, that's on my list of places to go. Absolutely, because it's just it looks so absolutely gorgeous. Now, if I recall, and I don't know if you know, but apparently 
you're not allowed to own property in Hawaii unless you're a native Hawaiian born. Have you heard no, that? That's not true. That's not true at all. No, Am I just... people buy houses there all the time. Oh, really? It's practically owned by Japan. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. I wonder where the heck I heard that from because somebody had told me that. One I think time. there there might be something like you can't like in certain areas mm -hmm. you couldn't buy land unless you were, but I don't know for sure. Okay. I mean because. Like when we went over there, we basically stripped them of, you know, all of their rights. Yeah. And then we backpedaled and gave them a few. Mm -hmm. But um, no, you can, I know you can own land because people do. That was all um, like Dole. Yeah, Dole. That's just what I was going to say. Every time you see Dole pineapple sitting in the can of the grocery store, you think about how he, because one, they, they went in there and they wanted the, Queen and all of them to sort of submit and agree to become a U.S. territory, and they said no, so they just killed them all and said, "Okay, we're a U.S. territory now. We got to, right. you know, nothing can get in the way of us selling pineapple." So, right. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword, you know. Like last year, I took U.S. history, okay, and for the first time in my life, like I learned about U.S. history. Yeah, I took it in high school, but didn't, you know, I was much more interested in boys than. Well, you know, school. Yeah, if you and like. and um, you know, it was fascinating to me. Like we talked about what's that? What was it called when we took over the West? Oh, manifest destiny. Yes. And, yeah. So you know, we did a whole thing on that, and it's like this double-edged sword. Like right, we you know created all of this this um, turmoil, and we killed Indians and took over their land. And yet, if had that not happened, we wouldn't have the country that we have. Right. Um, had Mexico taken it, you know, what would that look like? Because they, someone was going to take it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So, it. Yeah, it's 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 something that I think people who know about it have to wrestle with. Like, on one hand, we can sit there, and I guess that's always kind of the thing, is, you, is anybody, including me, like, I'll say I love this country. I love being an American. I love living here. You can't lie. We got some skeletons in the closet. Right. There are definitely some skeletons in the closet. I mean, especially just like you said, when it comes to Mexico, because at one point in time, Mexico owned Texas, New Mexico, mm -hmm. Nevada, most of California, and <clears throat> we went to war with them over it and paid them... You know, after we won the war and sort of could have a gun to their head and dictate terms, right. paid them basically change for that entire territory, which today is like, I mean, gosh, California, independent of the United States, is the fifth largest economy in the world. Um, the Trail of Tears, I mean, everything that happened with Native Americans. Yeah, it's something hard to wrestle. You can't deny it. But on the other hand, you, you sort of feel like you don't want to dwell on it either. You know, it's weird. Yeah. I mean, this is where we're at now. So we move forward mm -hmm. and hopefully make reparation for that. But um, I was listening to something. It was like a short little video. This woman, American Indian woman, talking about having to do um, genetic test. Not genetic. I don't know if it's genetic testing or whatever, where they determine how much... Um, like American Indian was still in their blood uh -huh. and what she was saying and I, I don't know if this is founded or not but she was saying they're the only race that has to do that right yeah and it's because eventually 
maybe there won't be enough of them right. and then we can take that land mm-hmm. without worrying about worrying it. about yeah. it yeah that's so sad i remember right. i was i had um and if anybody's listening to this podcast for us hearing me talk one of the people that in history that i'm a huge fan of is george washington which sounds very cliche to say but it's true but it was interesting how he had an extremely favorable view of native americans extremely as a matter of fact when he was president um one of the things he envisioned knowing of course that we were going to expand west knowing that that was inevitable it was going to happen but he had this idea of having indian reservations that were reserved that could not be encroached upon now by what he meant by indian reservations wasn't what we mean he meant like ohio you don't cross into Ohio. That is Indian territory. Right. You know, unfortunately, yeah, he didn't have final say and eventually was no longer president, was no longer around, and much more greedy hands got involved. And right. Yeah, it's too bad. It, it really is. Yeah, I think a lot of things in our history, like, have been, they start out with a good premise and, a, you know, it's it's meant for the betterment of, of those people. And then it ends up, like, in reality mm-hmm. being completely different yeah um i had heard something about eleanor roosevelt had told fdr is that who was president yeah. mm-hmm. at the beginning of world war ii yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah and um she you know about the japanese and like we need to protect them yeah because people are going to you know lash out at them so they decided to create these camps mm-hmm. and then the camps ended up internment know, camps yeah yeah and not protecting them yeah they, you know tried to destroy them mm-hmm. and, and um yeah but the the theory behind it was good yeah it's, the, it, it's kind of like the old saying the path to hell is paved with good intentions mm-hmm. like people start off with the idea of oh this will be great and then it somehow gets twisted or factors along the way sort of just yeah you're you're 100 true yeah or, um public aid yeah yeah you know, it started out as it's going to help certain people it's certain you know population or whatever and then now we have you know third generation fourth generation people right living on that yeah mm-hmm and i think um yeah, again, that's one of those they things. That, that could turn into a whole other podcast. We could, <laughs> exactly. we could totally veer off into an alternate dimension and just go, 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 go. But yeah, you're absolutely More right. About fighting. <laughs> well, storm out. Yeah. Gosh dang you. I don't even like Queen. <laughs> I was just saying that to be nice. No. Um, so we're getting close to finishing up here. And I put a thing up on Facebook earlier in the week saying that. Uh, Hey, going to be doing a podcast, want to do um, a new segment called Quick Hit. So I have three questions that listeners sent in for us to answer. Okay. The first one is, what is this one comes from Scott in Michigan, and he wants to know, what is the most annoying sound in the world? Oh, probably... Um, but <laughs> My animals don't sleep in my bedroom. Okay. They're crated at night, and that is because I can't stand the sound of them licking themselves. Okay. 
<laughs> I can understand that. That uh, both of my dogs do that. It doesn't bother me until they've been doing it for an excessive amount of time. <laughs> and you're like, you've been at it for 20 minutes. Whatever's there is either gone for good or you got it. <laughs> Please. <laughs> yeah. For me, it's a car, a really, really loud car flying up your street. Whether it's two in the afternoon or two in the morning. And I don't mean like a like a nice throaty Mustang. I mean like a piece of crap that for some reason the guy doesn't have a muffler and has something <laughs> to prove by going 50 and a 30. That drives me absolutely insane. Um, which this came from Jessica. She wants to know what came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, the chicken comes from an egg, right? So the egg came mm -hmm. first. Where'd the egg come from? From another chicken. I mean... <laughs> okay this one um this one comes from danny in chicago he wants to know i just went fishing and caught a mermaid is it going to taste like beef or fish chicken <laughs> that's i you know that i don't know how morbid this is but i wondered that for a long time about mermaids like if you were in a castaway situation and you caught one what would it taste like? Like, would it be human flesh? And then there's like one point where there's like a seam and then it becomes like fish, fish flesh? flesh. I've always wondered that. Hmm. I think either way you're having surf and turf. Get, exactly. Get some old bay seasoning and you're probably fine. Right. Um, all right. Crack that baby open. <laughs> well, <is> there... <laughs> <laughs> that might not have sounded right. Was there uh, anything you want to add or say in closing? Um, no, thanks for having me. So I did want to ask you, yeah. what made you ask me? What do you just ask like to be on your podcast? Um, Do you just ask anyone in general or what no, was No, no. Th this gets a little bit touchy. Um, I don't ask anybody. I actually, believe it or not, this is going to sound terrible. I have a couple people who are literally banging at my door to be on this podcast and I don't want them to be on the podcast because, and a lot of it's because the people who really, really want to be on it, want to be on it because they they want a soapbox. They want something to get off their chest. Mm. And that's not the reason I do the podcast. You right. know, I, this isn't here for you to be your forum to spew stuff out onto the airwaves. That's, you know, I'm not asking anybody to come on here. The the people who I want on the podcast the most who are, I don't want to say hesitant, but are more like, huh, what, me? Because <laughs> I think that for the most part, just about anybody you meet is going to have a story. They're going to have an interesting take on things, an interesting perspective. And like I said earlier on um, in the podcast, one of the reasons I started doing it is because I, I feel like we don't, you know, we don't have long form discussions as a society anymore. We don't sit and just just talk like, you know, we knew each other years ago. We had two college classes together. And in this hour and 20 minutes, we got to know each other better than we did that entire mm -hmm. time. Um, and, you know, anybody who especially anybody who's interesting. And you're, and you're definitely on that list of people who are interesting. You know, you've got the nursing thing. You, you're really into art. Um, you've traveled. Um, always have fun perspectives on stuff that, you know, I see you post on social media. So it was like, it was almost one of those things where last fall when I began to conceiving the idea of the podcast, I literally went through uh, my friends list on Facebook and started it mentally putting stars next to names. And you were one of the ones that was towards the top. So um, I want to thank you for A, 
even entertaining the idea, let alone driving out here and coming on, because sometimes that can be the hardest part is convincing people like, you know, I, I've had a couple of people and I understand that I've got some people I've been back and forth, but they're very, very introverted and they're kind of shy about coming on the podcast to begin with, um, you know, maybe don't want to travel. You know, I, I, under, right. I completely understand all that. So I appreciate you saying like, yeah, what the hell? I haven't <laughs> seen this guy or been to his house, but yeah, I'll drive all the way out to Freeport. and. Yeah, because you're like, uh, you know, as I was thinking about coming on here and mm-hmm. um, it was like, man, that is a, it's an odd relationship. Yeah. That we have. <laughs> like, we, like, you're probably the only person on my Facebook in my Facebook friends that I know as an acquaintance. Right, yeah. Like, we've never worked together. We've never socialized. Yeah. We, you know, never so had was, dinner, <laughs> shared long stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was like, huh, this is interesting. Yeah. And that was one of the things I found out on Facebook. I remember, like, last year, I, I, I tried this thing, and it was, I considered it a failed experiment, but I tried, I would, like... Once a week, I would just randomly pick one of my friends on Facebook and send him a private message. Hey, how are you? How are you doing? What's what's going on? What's new with you? 90% of the time, they wouldn't respond. And, you're just, <laughs> and you start to think about like, okay, I, I got to be realistic. I'm a guy. It probably looks like I'm trying to slide into the DMs there or whatever and be like, hey, girl, how are you? Like, no, I'm just genuinely, as a human being, how's right. life for you? What's new? <clears throat> so I decided, you know, maybe a podcast would be easier. <laughs> they can say that I'm like genuine and, you know, I actually want to have an actual conversation. And, and um, I, I feel like we accomplished that. Good. So cool. uh, once again, thanks for coming on. Um, I will shut thanks this for down. Me, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of humbled by it. Oh well, definitely, nice. definitely. We'll we'll get you in um, after you get back from Paris. Mm-hmm. You got to get in touch with me. Okay, like, we can do this again, and I can hear all about it, all right. and uh, we can you know listen to some Queen and and hang out. Awesome. Um, so once again, Elizabeth, thanks for coming on, um, and thank you everybody for listening.